0: Well, the conference has gotten off to a great start with our panels this morning, with our keynote address by Professor Weiler, and by the really fascinating discussion that only, be, only began uh, with uh, Professor Galston's paper in the last panel, which I hope will have a chance to continue in many different ways in the future, uh, uh, over dinner tonight and, and, in, and at other times. Uh, now we want to move on to the third panel, which is on religion and contemporary constitutional law. Obviously, our, uh, our whole conference is on the question of the naked public square, the general question of religion and politics. And in our country, more than in, in most countries in the world, uh, that, that's a discussion that's going to occur in courts because of the, the nature of the American Democratic Republic and especially the role of judicial review here. It's also due to the fact that the Supreme Court, in fact, has deeply injected itself into these questions, uh, especially in the second half of the 20th century. And so uh, Jerry Bradley is gonna take us on a stroll through uh, modern constitutional law regarding uh, the naked public square. Uh, Jerry is eminently qualified to do this. He's a professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, having taught earlier at uh, uh, University of Illinois Law School, graduated from Cornell uh, as uh, earlier, uh, and has a history degree, and uh, has also had some interesting experience uh, in New York City, kind of on the ground, uh, uh, as a uh, assistant DA there. Uh, his book on uh, religion and constitutional law, church-state relationships in America, I think is a, an extremely fine one. I'd encourage you all to run out and buy it uh, for the exorbitant price. The publisher will charge you, and... Uh, he has a, a variety of other interesting uh, sidelines, including being uh, oft times president of the uh, uh, Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He's uh, chair of the Federal Society of Religious Liberties Practice Group, and I can uh, testify myself to the importance of his role as the vice president of the American Public Philosophy Institute, of which I am president. The Vice Presidency of the American Public Philosophy Institute has the distinction of being the only office in the world that has fewer duties in total than the Vice Presidency of the United States, which, as you'll recall, has one duty to preside over the Senate and break ties. Uh, Jerry doesn't have that. Uh, But but he's been a wonderful Vice President, nonetheless. I I go to sleep every night assured that if, if I die during the night, I know that the APPI is in fine hands. So uh, we, we welcome Jerry for what I, I, having actually read the paper, I know will be a, a very interesting start to this afternoon's discussion.
1: Thank you. It does sometimes send tremors up and down my spine to be a mere heartbeat away from genuine power. <laughs> As president of the APPI, now I, I hasten to, to say that I wasn't literally on the ground in New York City what Chris is referring to and what now seems to me like a former lifetime. I was a prosecutor in Manhattan DA's office, and uh, Chris is much too much of an upright and pious man to tell you, but I, none of those problems, so I'll tell you that for about a year and a half I was the pimp prosecutor in Manhattan. (laughs) I don't think I recognize any of you. (laughs) But if things do get a little slow later on, I have one or two stories that might interest (laughs) least some of you. Now, I really should like to begin by recognizing and thanking my friend and longtime uh, frequent collaborator, Robert George, uh, for putting together the program, of course, with the able help of the staff at the Madison Program. My admiration for Robbie uh, goes back quite a way, uh, literally, to his very first, I think it's his first scholarly publication. It's certainly his first law review article, uh, appropriate enough given the place from which he housed in the West Virginia Law Review. And it's on the... uh, It's in the Establishment Clause. The Establishment Clause has been a long-time interest of mine. But that's not why I admire Rob. You really took any notice of him. But uh, you can't resist a guy who, in their very first article, his very first article, his very first footnote, and I'm reading it from the page. One, labels on bottle number 1768 of the Barbersville Vineyards, 1980, Virginia Pinot Chardonnay, in the author's collection. <laughs> now, Robbie cited that esteemed source for the textual proposition. Well, actually, I don't think I'll tell you the textual proposition. That's the tease. But also, I'd like to recognize my friend, uh, longtime friend, Father Richard Newhouse. Uh, his single contribution or accomplishment, I guess you should say, at least in the regard, regard that most interests us, is to not only write a very important and significant book, Naked Public Square, but also to launch into the lexicon, the vernacular, a phrase. So from 1984 on, Naked Public Square uh, has really brought up common parlance. I remember one time, I think it was in First Things, the stuff at the back, that Richard knocks off in stray moments, uh, the public square, the tidbits. He lamented, oh, a couple of years ago, uh, again, just a, a mild lament that well, everybody says it, he wouldn't mind if people occasionally who say Naked Public Square would at least once in a while, a few of them would say it's Father Newhouse who coined the phrase. Well, I was going to help Richard feel a bit better about this benign neglect, if that's what it is, and I thought I would take out a, a domain uh, called the Naked Public Square. But then I realized that actually that probably shouldn't be the property of a Roman Catholic priest. And besides, a lot of the people clicking onto it would not find there what they expected to find. (laughs) I said to Father Newhouse just a couple of hours ago when I showed up, I said, uh, well, you should just copyright it, Richard. And he said, you're a lawyer. You should know that you can't copyright it. And I will confess now, uh, I didn't know that. Uh, Apparently, you can't copyright a title. But now I do know. Well, I turned to my paper, as Chris described as a stroll through something, something. Uh, But I I should say the paper is is not short, uh, but I will be brief and I will summarize it. I should say by way of introduction to the paper that the burden of it, as far as I can describe it, or as best I can describe it, is to persuade its reader that it is high time for the Supreme Court to put the naked public square, or exactly its doctrines, which amount to the naked public square, it's time for the Court To put the doctrine to its proof that it's time for a fundamental reconsideration of the naked public square, the secularized public square, or what I call more often than not in the paper privatized religion. And By those three phrases I I do mean the same thing, secularized public square or secularism in the public square, the naked public square, and private religion. Uh, I mean the same thing by those terms. But I think that the way I argue it can be described as following. It's not by virtue of um, a normative argument against the concept. That's an argument or conversation at least for a different time and place. Uh, It's not a philosophical argument. It's not even an argument, at least in this paper, from authoritative constitutional sources. I mean, it is my view, and it does become apparent through the course of the paper, that I think the Constitution fairly read in its origins or with regard to its origins and looking again at the tradition of its interpretation really doesn't give one a naked public square. But that's not the way I argue the matter here. Again, in favor of the conclusion that it's high time to reconsider the naked public square, I think I try to have it collapse under the weight of thick description. And so I have this 40-page paper which fundamentally is an analytical description of what the court has been doing for the last 50 or so years. And the paper begins this way. Uh, I should say, finally, by way of recognizing um, the instigator of this meeting, that the court did for the new house a great favor in 1984 and 85, or during that term, uh, by confirming his thesis, because 1984 85 really marks, we can see now in retrospect, the high watermark, the heyday or the salad days of the court's campaign to privatize religion. But though its antecedents, the Naked Public Square, can be traced to dictum in the Everson case from 1947. The Naked Public Square did not open for business until 1962 with the school prayer decision, Engel v. Vitale. The campaign was troubled from the start. Engel scandalized a broad cross-section of Americans. The decision the next term, 63, against Bible reading, the Shemp case, made things worse and the people's reception of the whole judicial campaign to privatize religion has never grown any warmer. Pushback these days includes fights over the Ten Commandments displays, uh, non-Darwinist accounts of human origins in school curricula, student Bible clubs, just to mention a few of the more contentious issues and just within the public schools. The privatization (laughs) project never fit with our religious traditions. Christian morality, for example, extends to questions of human rights and public welfare, and makes inescapable demands upon those exercising public authority, as John Kerry says. I'm tempted to say, and frankly I'll give in to the temptation, as even John Kerry says, faith without works is dead. Neither Mormonism (laughs) nor Islam is a private faith, and at least some branches of Judaism cannot be shoehorned into the private realm. The Engel enterprise, the naked public square, never fit within our culture of public deliberation about the political common good either. Our public discourse has always been tinged with religious doctrine, imagery, and religiously sanctioned moral norms, except sometimes much more than tinged with them. Now, the Engel Court in 62 claimed unequivocal historical warrants in the founding for its broad secularist mandate. These were cogently challenged in the case by Justice Stewart's dissent And scholars since have disproved them. One wonders whether it matters, and by that I mean, do the history lessons really supply a ground, a real reason for action for one or more of the justices? Perhaps, but I do myself agree with Justice Byron Wright's assessment in a 1973 case, Nyquist. He wrote in 73 that the court's decisions had in fact lost contact or meaningful contact with the founding, That the justices had instead, and here's where I quote Justice White, carved out what they deemed to be the most desirable policy, close quote, in church-state issues. Policy, contingent, context-bound, revisable, policy good for today in this place to tackle these problems may not fit another time, another place, different problems. But if not history, what were the court's what have been the Court's guides. Well, probably not doctrine, constitutional doctrine, because I look at the cases from Everson forward, but especially since Engel in 62, show the Court, in my view, manufacturing doctrine ad hoc along the way, according to some inner light, and dispensing altogether with doctrinal discipline as the occasion demanded. Church Day constitutional cases are indeed the legal realist's dream their policy all the way down. Well, perhaps mercifully then, the day of reckoning for Engel's Naked Public Square may be near at hand. When I wrote the draft, I put the draft together a few weeks ago, I said that when the court confronts the merits of the Pledge of Allegiance case, one nation unto God, that that would be the case to put privatization or secularism, the Naked Public Square, in the dock, and I still think that's true if the court tackles the issues honestly, forthrightly. Now the court more recently has granted review in two cases, Ten Commandments display and what's all lupa, the Religious Land Use Institutionalized Persons Act case. Now either of those cases could be a vehicle for a full-scale reconsideration of the privatization project, although neither is exactly the right case. But again, either could be. Uh, we'll see if it... Either of them is, or turns out to be. But now my paper had several purposes, several parts, and they are uh, to show um, how great and abrupt and how thinly warranted was the departure in angle, how brief were the salad days of privatization, how far the court has retreated from those heady days of 1984, the high watermark, as I say, And how many of the felt political necessities of time and place and circumstance which produced privatization in the courts have simply gone away. The great wall of separation understood to be guarding a naked public square is not yet a rotten door, but it's pretty rickety. It's time-worn.